It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Kelly, welcome to the Megan Kelly Show. I hope you all had a nice Memorial Day weekend, spending time with your family, with your friends, and hopefully taking some time to remember those who sacrificed for our country and the freedoms we hold so dearly. Uh, spent a long time talking about it with my kids, trying to get them to understand what it means, what Memorial Day means, and who we're honoring, and why we're so lucky to live in this country. Didn't come easy and didn't come for free. Um, and by the way, on that subject, it's always a busy weekend for everyone. So if you missed our Friday interview with Medal of Honor recipient Dakota Meyer, I promise you it is well worth your time. I had so many friends come to me this weekend. We went to uh, the Jersey Shore and um, say that they listened to it on their ride down there or what have you. And he's just an incredible person with a spectacular story that just will move you to all sorts of places. So if you have a good drive ahead of you, we went we went long on that when we played a version live on Sirius, but the podcast was a little longer because we didn't want to cut him short. Listen to it. Uh, cue it up. Dakota Meyer from this past Friday. Okay, so now we are on Monday. And at this hour, we're waiting for verdicts in two big court cases. And I wonder which one you think is the bigger court case. I mean, I can tell you this weekend where I went, Nobody was talking about anything other than Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. But my one friend who's more conservative said, I've been following it at all. I've been following the trial of Michael Sussman. <laughs> so it really kind of depends. Um, I've been following both because I'm in the news biz. And I have to say that that Sussman verdict could come down in any minute and has much more larger implications uh, for for politics, at least. And you could argue the country than Amber and Johnny, though that one has larger cultural implications, too. Sussman is the former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer accused of walking into the FBI shortly before the 2016 election and trying to say, hey, you know, just as a concerned citizen, I want to let you know that um, something bad's happening. We appear to have unearthed a connection between this Russia bank, Alpha Bank and Trump. It's not good. You guys should look into it. Same time they had dropped that same oppo research, which had been totally manufactured to The New York Times. And uh, they were trying to get The Times to publish it. And they thought they'd get a, have a better shot at that if they could get the FBI to investigate it. And uh, in the end, the only one they got to bite was Slate, that left wing, totally uncredible rag that said, oh, we'd love to run with this. We would love to do it. Sure. They're embarrassed. Uh, so there was nothing to the story. But now there's an attempt at accountability to the guy who tried to peddle it to the FBI without disclosing he was there on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign. All right. It gets kind of complicated, but we've got a guy who's been neck deep in it. Who's going to He and I will walk through it with you so you can accurately understand where this is going as we are on verdict watch. The second verdict, as I mentioned, between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, he sued her for defamation. She's counterclaimed for the same. And um, that thing began with a bang and ended with one, too. Um, the closing arguments last week were amazing. They were gripping. Um, they were. Oh, I'm just hearing Sussman verdicts in. Look at that. As if on cue. Not guilty. 
Wow. Not guilty. And can I tell you, not surprised. I was just reading this article out of the Boston Herald by uh, Howie Carr, Carr um, talking about the jurors who made it onto that jury. The judge was, a, I think, Barack Obama appointee whose wife is all tied up in uh, Democrat firms involving Eric Holder. And it's a who's who of Democrat administrations, Obama, um, Biden, Merrick Garland. You go down the list, but that's the judge. The jurors who are allowed on that jury openly said, I donated to Hillary Clinton. I donated to AOC. I absolutely can't. There was one guy who was conservative, hates Trump. He's a never Trumper. And on and on it went. Um, So this was not a jury pool that was in any way favorable to the prosecution. And I'll tell you the other problem in that case. I'll tell you that. And we'll get into this more later, but I'll tell you the other problem. Um, The FBI was the one who had been lied to. And they were in on it. The FBI loved the lie. The FBI was like, great. You got dirt on Trump. We love it. Let's open an investigation right away. They didn't give a damn whether Sussman disclosed that he was there on behalf of Hillary or just said he was a concerned citizen. Only John Durham, the special prosecutor after the fact, cared about that. The FBI didn't give two shits about that. (laughs) They were like, yes, let's get him. (laughs) And, And the FBI has already had one guy convicted, an FBI attorney, for wrongfully trying to get gin up a case against Carter Page. And they had one other guy who uh, he he testified on the stand. He's under investigation right now for withholding information that would have undermined the Russia Trump narrative. So the FBI is not exactly a sympathetic, um, a sympathetic victim here, if you will. And I'm using that term, that quote in in quotes, uh, that term in quotes, victim. Uh, Anyway, we'll get into all of this in just one second, but we're going to kick it off today um, in Uvalde, Texas, where there's disturbing new information about the shooter's actions leading up to that awful day. And indeed, now we know there were more warning signs that it seems that no one cared to flag. All right. So we're going to get into all that. And by the way, new developments today into the Supreme Court leaguer, the leaker, the marshal, maybe getting a little closer to figuring out uh, who it was. So joining me now is Andrew Sullivan. Um, He's been on the program before. He's the founding editor and co-owner of The Weekly Dish, a hugely successful newsletter on Substack, and hosted the podcast The Dishcast with Andrew Sullivan. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. Andrew, welcome. Great to have you here. So I won't put you on the spot and make you discuss Sussman because we do have a lawyer coming on who's been following it very carefully. Um, But I do want to talk about Uvalde, which is in the news very much. I know you've written about it yourself. And the absolutely dreadful developments that have come out of there about the police in action on the spot. And it's not to say that the blame lies with the police. The blame lies with the shooter. One hundred percent. But what happened down there is absolutely extraordinary and it's unforgivable and it's painful to even discuss. But it, it must be your thoughts. Well, like you, I I just I, I almost don't know what to say when 19 children are gunned down. It. it Every time I think about it, my heart sinks even lower. And I think that kind of numbness, 
uh, was bad enough. And then when you got the subsequent news that the cops seem to have completely bungled this and that those lives might have been saved. And then you also see the story of this incredibly troubled, obviously pathological kid, bullied, isolated, angry, threatening, lots and lots and lots of red flags right there. I, Megan, I, I don't know what to say. I, I'm an immigrant to this country, so the gun situation here is for me and for anybody outside the United States uh, pretty hard to understand. I mean, it's, you understand why? I mean, this, is, this is the only sort of Western developed country that for hundreds of years had a completely open frontier. You, you can understand why with the Second Amendment that evolved, but they were in a situation where the, the simple consequence of that is the massacre of children, the, the, and that will happen again and again and again. Uh, I honestly, I've given up. Mm. I don't think there's anything to be done. I've watched the politics of this, and I don't, I feel, I don't feel strong. I'm not one of these new immigrants think that America's gun laws are without reason or without defense or without historical roots. But I don't know how much longer our collective consciences can allow something like an AR-15 in the hands of anyone, really. Uh, a machine gun that was devastated these children's bodies to such an extent that the parents had to give DNA to recognize their children. Hmm. Uh, it is, well, it is unconscionable in any other place. Except, I don't, except I don't to, disagree with your yeah. feeling of futility. Um, but, and I'm not a huge gun person. My audience knows like I'm, it's a, it's an amendment. <laughs> it's a right. I get that as a lawyer, but um, I'm not like a, a gun advocate, a second amendment advocate. However, every time I look into this, Andrew, it's not a machine gun. An AR-15, it's a semi-automatic rifle and it does the same amount of damage in the same amount of time as a semi-automatic handgun that is 85% of what gets purchased over the counter today in America. I mean it's if you go for self-protection and want to buy a gun, you're probably going to get like a Glock or a 9 millimeter and when every time you press pull the trigger a, a bullet fires. That's what an AR15 does too. It just looks scarier. It just looks but, scarier. But doesn't it have many more bullets? No, it, this guy modified it, or I think I'm pretty sure he modified it and the, the previous shooter modified it. But no, it can't fire faster or more bullets than than a handgun. So I know well, it looks like I'm me, happy to say I don't the know futility. the difference. But that but to me, that's the futility of the problem. It kind of goes to your original point, because, you know, we have 330 million people here and we have 400 million guns and we're not getting rid of them. We, we are not. We're not doing what Canada just did today and said, we're going to have an assault weapons ban. Kamala Harris said she wants one. It's not happening. And I love it because they said, well, Congress won't do anything. Well, you guys control Congress. We have a Democratic president. We have a Democratic House. We have a Democratic Senate. So don't make it sound like, oh, this inactive Congress. Like your party is does not have the will to do this because it's unpopular because guns are very popular in America. And I knew you as, you as, a, as a native Brit don't get that. I, I mean, well, I'm I just think you, I, I can get that. I can. I understand that. But what it means, what it means is that America is the only country that will massacre its own children on a regular basis. And America has to own that. 
If it wants to own the Second Amendment, it has to own the massacre of children as a particularly American phenomenon. And I just I, I just think if, if that's what we're going to say, that's what we have to be. That's what, how we have to understand ourselves and our country. I'm an American citizen. Yeah. I understand that being an American means to live in a country where children will be massacred on a regular basis. Mm. Well, uh, listen, I'm, I find this deeply alarming, too. But there have been massive shootings of children overseas in other countries, perhaps not as regularly as we see here. And it's a problem we have to take a hard look at. Uh, but the, the thing is. We have a huge country. Our country's way bigger than virtually all the other countries that in which this has happened or where we look to sort of see what's happening there. 330 million people are not easy to control. And we have lunacy and we have red flags that we ignore. And I mean, both in connection with the selling of guns and just in connection with policing ourselves, you know, like being a concerned citizen and calling up you know, the authorities and saying, hey, this guy's a problem. Like we saw with the Buffalo shooter, he, he tortured a cat to death. I mean, animal torture is always a precursor. It's all I mean, like you can take it to the bank anyway. Um, well, I mean, I think of, one of the things I would say is that I have been persuaded these red flag laws, partly because of David French's passionate support for them, right. seem like at least one way forward uh, to try and catch uh, psychopaths or just deeply troubled young men yeah. from doing this. And it's, it's mainly young men. The other thing that's behind this, and if you look at this kid's past, no father. Yep. If you know present father, if, and you will find through all these cases and through a lot of not just ma um, mass murders, but regular shootings, which happen every day, that it's, it's young men without fathers that are doing this. And at some level, we have to also get the deeper cultural issues here, which is that men and boys, me, boys need dads. They really do. And some male role model to teach them what it is to be a man, which is not, uh, not using an AR-15. It's not using one and only using something out of defense to protect your family or your children or your neighborhood. And there is a different kind of masculinity than this... Uh, this kind of macho warrior ethic. And uh, I think the absence of fatherhood is a hugely underappreciated phenomenon in our social ills. And this kid, not only did he not have a dad, he really didn't have much of a mom, according to the reports. The mom, well, according to the grandmother, was on drugs and was no longer even in the picture. He didn't get along with her. He was living with the grandmother. Mm. So, you know, he had dropped out of out of school, we saw a soundbite with his grandfather being like, oh, you can't tell him what to do. You know, kids today. It's like, no, you can. You can. When they're a minor, you can force them to go to school or you can seek help and you can understand he's withdrawing from society and you can monitor his online behavior and so on. And that was the news just uh, over the weekend that he did. In addition to this timeline, we're now getting about what happened with the with the police. There is a social media app called Yubo. Y-O-Y-U-B-O. And um, I, I had never heard of this, but apparently it's based in Paris. And sure enough, Andrew, we heard from the FBI after the Buffalo shooting that the vast majority of school shooters or mass shooters do telegraph their intentions beforehand. And the news as we went into the Memorial Day weekend was, oh, he, you know, 30 minutes before he shot his grandmother, he was like, I'm going to shoot my grandma. OK, I just shot my grandma and then I'm going to go do a school shooting. And then it was over. No, nope, it was much more extensive than that. Um, he apparently went on to this website 
He was telling girls on the website he was going to rape them. He showed off a rifle he had purchased. He threatened to shoot up schools in live streams. And many of the users reported him. There was one woman, um, last name Robbins, 19 years old, said he verbally threatened to break down her door and rape and murder her after she rebuffed his sexual advances. She reported him to Yubo several times, she says, and blocked him, but continued seeing his live streams. Uh, Another girl, Hannah, 18, from Canada, said she reported him, too, to Yubo in early April after he threatened to shoot up her school and rape and kill her and her mother during one live stream session. I'm not saying it's Yubo's fault. But we don't have a big system to collect all the red flags as they pop up, be it on Yubo, be it from the school that lets that sees the dropout come, be it from his friends at Wendy's who said he was inappropriate there and making troubling remarks. You know, there's there's no way to capture it in such a large country. And the other thing is that on online, of course, you add the number of people with a million different avatars, a million different names. Uh, and a huge amount of anonymity. And I don't know what would be required for us to be able to find these things, but I'm sure it's doable at some level. And we should have better ways in which we can identify this. And social media companies should take responsibility. I mean, it's not Ubo's fault. It's no one's fault but the shooter. But if Ubo had been told of this and never did anything, just one call to the FBI would would would, would have helped. Right. Uh, that's what we could have avoided. And that, that seems to be something that social media companies, again, uh, so many major companies seem to think their only goal and their only uh, motive is to make money. And it is to make money and to help please their shareholders. But we're also civic entities. We are, we're all citizens. And, 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 and I, I think it's a, a terrible thing that major companies do not feel in any way responsible for the social peace uh, of their own societies. It's as if they exist in some weird world of cyberspace where well, they don't acknowledge that they also have responsibilities as well as rights. You're so right. And you point out that it's almost always, it's almost always young men between the ages of, let's say, 15, if it's a school shooting and 22, you know, around there. Um, And you can it's different ethnicities. It's often white. In this case, it was somebody who was Latino and, um, you know, similar. But you can you can get a profile very easily of who the potential school shooters are. It's it's almost never. I can't even remember a case where it was a young girl or a woman. So there's a way of creating a profile in the same way, frankly, we did for the, um, you know, radical Islamist terror attacks that the country was suffering for for a long time after 9-11, the domestic terror attacks. And people can say it's inappropriate, but there's a profile, you know, and there's a reason like you're not going to suspect me of committing radical Islamist terror on the homeland um, or you of committing a school shooting. Right. You don't fit the profile. You've aged out. And we're not doing that. Thank you, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations. I'm aware of my gradual decrepitude. But uh, (laughs) yeah, no, I know. I'm an unlikely school shooter. But you know what? Most of the actual just shootings in America are committed by men under 30. Yeah. These are not not women shooting people up. It's 90, I think over 90% male. And of course, it's 90% happening among men whose testosterone levels are at their natural uh, life peak, which is likely to reduce 
their inhibitions uh, increase their likelihood for anger, and especially if they're in conflict with others, lead to outbreak. These are these are things that we know. Um, and as I said, uh, we can do all this stuff, but unless these boys, and that's what they are in so many circumstances, have don't have someone in their lives who can tell them what's right and what's wrong, they are they are going to keep doing this, and that's that's our deeper problem. That's what's so disturbing is that your inability to stop it and you know it you know it's like in some of these cases sure we can red flag these guys maybe even involuntarily commit some of the worst ones but the bar for that is so high right now and no one's even considering lowering it you know that's one thing i want i want it to be easier there may be beginnings of a shift on mental illness i think megan i mean I, i i do think that the way in which mental illness has combined with drug addiction especially with meth uh, and to some extent with fentanyl now and homelessness, uh, we, I think, need to have a conversation again about whether it is a good thing for the mentally ill to be allowed to walk free everywhere and not to have some compulsory kind of uh, care, uh, if not for their own sake, then for the sake of the rest of mm-hmm. the country. I mean, many of these shootings of people with serious, you know, really difficult mental challenges and uh and that's you know that's we, we did we started doing that in the 80s it was reagan actually that that, yeah. that supported the uh deregulation of 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 what we used to call committing i don't know what the in england it's called sectioning or something they come up with some word but it means involuntary being involuntarily sent to uh a, a hospital where your mental health can be tackled um and I, for one, having looked around me and seen the city I grew up in, and also in my own life, people with mental illness, I, I think allowing people with mental illness to get sicker and sicker until their lives are being thrown away is not something I could do in good conscience with a family member or someone I had any. Uh, and I've had family members in such institutions, and I, and they are, you know, they are incredibly important for helping people with with serious mental illness. Mm-hmm. We have such a mass problem with it now because we don't have good facilities. We don't have, I've said before, loving facilities for, let's say, a mom or a grandma, in this case, that wanted to involuntarily commit their, their 18-year-old son or grandson. That There's no place right now that you would willingly put a loved child or grandchild. And we need one. Uh, and then we need to be, you know, p- the, the left wants to go after the Second Amendment rights. What about the Fourth Amendment rights? All right. The 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 freedom to be in uh, uh, to avoid involuntary searches and seizures or unreasonable searches and seizures. Right. That's that's why they can't just lock us up and throw away the key. Well, why don't we take a look at that? Because I think a little if we're going to ebb and flow on some of these rights, that should be one on the table. I mean, what was this guy doing out and about after making these threats that were public and knowable? You know, shouldn't we be casting a wider net while Merrick Garland's so busy investigating parents as threats for not wearing masks at school board meetings, but he's doing nothing to coordinate, at least with the social media. You know, he wants to coordinate with the social media on disinformation, doesn't people putting out wrong COVID info. But what about coordinating with social media companies on men who fit this profile, who are of the age, who have been reported repeatedly by people for making threats to shoot up schools? Right. Like, what about that? The left won't even talk about that because civil liberties, other than the Second Amendment, <laughs> they care about civil liberties except for that one. There, there are civil, liber- civil liberties. I'm a big civil libertarian, but I do think that when you're dealing with people who are not fully able to be 
to consent to things, who aren't fully able to be in control of their own faculties, in which we can have good criteria for recognizing that and for helping them and thereby saving the community from the constant interactions that one has. I mean, you think of the subway in New York City and so much of the people that are committing violence there yeah. or or just disruption are clearly not mentally well, like the subway shooter not so long ago. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, I, I don't, you see, you must see it, right? I live in Washington, D.C. Oh, I'm now happily in Provincetown. But in Washington, it's, it's everywhere on the streets. I mean, it's not as bad on, as in the West Coast cities, but it's, it's right there. And my heart goes out to people in that situation. And especially with meth, which is this terrifyingly potent uh, drug, especially as it's been reformulated. It, mm-hmm. it would make a sane person crazy. Mm-hmm. What it does to crazy people, I know I'm not used, supposed to use those words, but you know what I'm saying. Yes, um, of course. When people well, and, do and it's have- flowing across the border at alarming rates, which is another problem we refuse to take on. <laughs> Although but, you know, the new meth can just say- be made here. I, I want, I want, I, I would like some fortification of the schools. I would like to see some of the leftover COVID money directed in better ways, including um, security at the schools. Why wouldn't we have security at the schools? We have security at the football stadium. Why don't we have it at the schools where our precious and most vulnerable are, right? They can't defend themselves. The soft targets are attractive for a reason to these lunatics. And I feel like, and, and by the way, another thing, just as an aside, is the, the media has to stop with the constant publication of the names and pictures of the shooters. I mean, look at Jordan Peterson, look at Gavin DeBecker. There's so many people who have done great writing on this. They want infamy and the media just proceeds to help without any thought for their role in it. But on the subject of the school, Andrew, the, the information that came out this weekend is chilling. Let me just give you a bit of the TikTok. This is via CBS, but everybody has it because they gave it. They finally, finally came out and gave the TikTok, which they'd been avoiding all last week. They lied. They misstated the facts. And now they've finally been forced to actually list it. 11.27 a.m., an exterior door to the school was propped open by a teacher. One minute later, Gumman's truck crashed into a ditch near the school. Teacher runs into a room in the school to retrieve a phone and goes back to the open door. Two males from a nearby funeral home head to the scene of the crash. The gunman fires at them but doesn't hit them. 1130. This is minutes later. A person, apparently the teacher calls 911 to report the cat, the crash and the armed gunman. 1131. The gunman reaches the last row of vehicles at the school, begins shooting at the school. So as of 1131 a.m., the gunman was shooting at the school. A school resource officer responds to the school from off campus, driving past the gunman who's hunkered down behind a vehicle. One minute later, 1132, multiple shots are fired at the school. 1133. Gunman enters the school. He enters the school, so nothing happened with a school resource officer to stop him. He then begins shooting into room 111 or room 112. Apparently, they were connected by a bathroom. Um, He fired at least 100 rounds. So most of the damage, we believe, happened early, though we don't know that. 1135, three Uvalde police officers entered the school through the same door as the gunman. They suffered, quote, grazing wounds. I'd like to know more about that since they've been misleading us about and their, their police do not seem particularly brave. Um, what's your grazing wound? Tell me more. Uh, later, three additional police officers and a sheriff's deputy entered the school. By 1137 to 1144, another 16 rounds were fired off. By 1151, police sergeant and other law enforcement agents arrive. 12.03 now. So we're 30 plus minutes into this. As many as 19 officers are in the school hallway. A student in room 112 called 911, whispering she was in room 12. 
Uh, seven minutes later, 1210, she calls 911 again, saying multiple people are dead. Three minutes after that, 1213, she calls 911 again. Uh, two minutes after that, members of a Border Patrol tactical unit arrive at the school. 1216, the student calls 911 again, saying eight to nine students were alive. 1219, another student calls 911. The call gets disconnected. 1221, the gunman fires again. The group of law enforcement officers and agents move down the hallway during a 911 call made at this time. You can hear the sound of three shots being fired. All cops are there. You got two dozen cops outside. He's still shooting people or so it would seem. 1213, first student who had been calling 911 called again, staying on the line for 21 seconds. She told 911 he shot the door. 1243 and 1247, the student called 911 again, begging, please send the police now. This poor child. Can you imagine what she, I think, was thinking over the course of an hour as she knew the police were there and they didn't come in? She said she could hear the police next door. 1250, the officers finally breached a locked door using what? TNT? Dynamite? No. Keys they got from the janitor. That was that was accessible to them all along. Shots were heard. The gunman was killed. And then they rescued the remaining students. There's no excuse if you are not willing to risk your life to save a bunch of single digit children who are being shot by a crazed gunman. You're in the wrong line of work. If you're wearing a badge, find something else to do. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I can't put it better than that. Um, although I am not going to be a, a judge of people in that situation, but it does seem to me to be just horrifying incompetence and cowardice. Let's call it what it is. I want to go back to one detail you mentioned, which was 100 rounds. How many bullets is that? It's 100. You know? That's 100 bullets. 100 bullets? Yeah. Now, you say 100 bullets, ability to shoot 100 times is, is a completely normal weapon for self-defense. And I, well, I, I mean, don't believe it. Well, it was modified, I, though, I think. I think it was modified. Even, but here, but here's if, the thing. Even if it I'm was. I'm sorry, no one needs a, hundred, a gun that can shoot 100 rounds like that in a civilized society. No one. No one for right, hunting. But he, no if, if you modify no it. No one for self-defense. Then, but if you might, like, we have laws on the books preventing murder that he didn't observe either. You know, he modified it to, to have a, a greater capacity. But let me just take you back to Virginia Tech and that shooting, which I covered live. I was there uh, moments after the, the day after it happened. And um, he only used semi-automatic handguns. That's it. He just had a couple of them. And they're very easy to reload quickly. You know, it's like, so you can blame it on the AR-15. And, my, and I couldn't care less about an AR-15. Do I care whether people get to keep their AR-15s? Not really. But I understand that get, you could take away every single one of them. It's not going to change anything. You're going to have just as many school shootings and you're going to have just as many dead. It's those particular guns. I can give you guns could be a potential problem here. I can give you that. This particular gun, that's a comfort check. That's the shoes at the airport. Getting rid of them is not going to stop this. Well, that may be true, too. Um, th then the question is simply what I said before, which is that we are the only country in the world where this thing happens. Uh, really? I mean, there, there have been, I think, We're a couple of others one. elsewhere um, by, by, by a mile. Um, yeah. So that's what America means. Own it. Hmm. I think um, 
there's going to be accountability for these officers quite clearly. Yes, um, they will be. And they will be. You know, the fact that they lied about it after the fact is even worse. Now we finally have the DOJ investigating. Originally, they said no. They want to investigate every police department. I mean, you have an altercation with a man on uh, in a car who happens to be African-American. Believe me, the DOJ is going to be investigating. This one took them a week before they finally said, OK, we'll look into it. Ah, thanks. OK, terrific. We'll get to the bottom of all of it. We do appear to now know the name of the the head officer who made the call to treat this as a hostage situation instead of as an active shooter situation. Uh, and I have to say, you're more generous than I am because unlike you, I am willing to judge. And that man's a coward. And I don't know how he looks himself in the mirror on a day like this now that we know. I mean, he definitely has blood on his hands. It's not his fault, but he could have done more to stop it. And he's going to have to deal with that from now until the day he passes. All right, stand by. Andrew Sullivan is here to discuss so much more, including his recent testy exchange with Jon Stewart. My God, Jon Stewart was a nightmare. He's awful. Whatever you once thought of him, he's just truly awful now. And what he did to Andrew was grossly unfair and an ambush, says Andrew. Um, and also Leah Thomas is back in the news today, giving an interview uh, this morning that uh, was it, it was to ABC. And uh, guess what? Sorry. Not sorry. We'll tell you what she's saying. Don't go away. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. Okay, so Andrew, let me kick it off with Leah Thomas, the uh, transgender swimmer who's on the UPenn team, who's been breaking records and beating all the biological women. Uh, she's finally on camera giving an interview now to ABC News, sat down with Juju Chang and um, had some things to say about her right to swim in women's sports. Here's soundbite one. Women who signed the letter anonymously said that they absolutely supported your right to transition, but they simply think it's unfair for you to compete against cisgendered women. You can't go halfway and be like, I support trans women and trans people, but only only to a certain point where if you support trans women as women and they've met all the all the NCA requirements and then I don't know if you can really say something like that trans women are not a threat to women's sports mm-hmm. what do you make of it well uh, i i want to say two things one is that i understand and appreciate the the situation that leah thomas finds herself in and i don't think this is a ploy or something fake. I think it's real. And I want to respect her and her rights in every single respect. And that means 90, not 99% of the situations I would support her in. There's just like 1% of a few small things like biology, which is incredibly important <laughs> in something like sports, which in which biology is central. So similarly, I do think that there are questions in which Women who've been abused and need to find shelter should have an option to have a shelter for their domestic abuse in a place where there are no people with penises. Uh, I, 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 that You can have shelters which have both trans and 
uh, women and and women. Uh, but I think there should be some options for women who don't want to be in the presence of men. And I would say that also for prison. Now, those aren't huge exceptions, Megan. Mm-hmm. They're just a small concession to reality. And look, I am and always felt myself to be a, a big supporter of trans rights. And you know what? We won. The Bostock decision uh, granted transgender people every civil right under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. If you had If I'd been told that would happen 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. It's happened. It was an opinion signed by Neil Gorsuch. So it's over. All that's left is the cultural issue. And the cultural issue, in my view, has been co-opted by the radical left, which has taken hold of what was once the gay rights movement and turned it into something called the LGBTQIA++ Uh, movement, which is really an attempt not to grant civil rights to transgender people or to gay people, which has happened, but to destroy the sexual binary because they believe it's somehow oppressive. Uh, Now, I don't believe the sex binary is oppressive. Um, In fact, I think it's kind of liberating in many ways. Mm. It's oppressive for the tiny proportion of people who have this deep conflict between how they understand themselves and how their bodies are. And I understand that, and I, but it's a tiny majority, tiny minority. And for the vast majority of people, the sexual binary is, in fact, a fact. If we didn't have a sexual binary, there would be no human beings. It is integral to our reproductive strategy as a species. There are no people who are both men and women. Uh, there are a tiny number of people who are intersex, but normally you can tell whether they have gamete, large or small gametes. They don't, no one is born with the ability to have sperm and eggs, right? You can't reproduce yourself. We're not amoebas. We're mm, humans. Right. And, and so making this distinction should not offend transgender people. And you know what? It doesn't offend most transgender people. Mm. The trouble is these activists seize control these issues. They've, they use and abuse, they've used and abused us gays in trying to turn us into things we're not. They're trying to make, that you would think that every single gay person in America was a screaming leftist if you read the media. Yeah, It is exactly not true. Right. It is not true. It is not true. It is not true. We as gay people are born everywhere in the United States randomly. That means in Texas and Oklahoma, just as much as in New York and California. And we have in the gay community a large diversity of opinion. We have 30% voting for Trump. We've always had solid gay conservatives and liberals who are not party to this neo-Marxist claptrap. And the trouble is the intimidation of those of us who stick up for being gay or lesbian. who are, who, who are same-sex attracted, not same-gender attracted, uh, has rendered this debate skewed. I have to say one good news about this was finally in the New York Times ran Michael Powell's piece this Sunday, which is the first time that newspaper has published anything approaching objectivity on this question. Mm-hmm. Previously, it's just been pure propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and look, There is and has to be a distinction between trans women and women. And women 
who have always been women, are biologically women, are chromosomally women, are functionally women, have had the experiences of a woman from childhood onwards. Uh, that distinction between that and someone who's biologically male with all the male nibbly bits, as it were, uh, <laughs> it's real. And and it, it doesn't offend gay people. Look, you get rid of same-sex attraction in favor of same-gender attraction, you've abolished homosexuality. Yeah. The radicalism of this attack on sex is not only an attack on the core women's rights, it's also an attack on gay people. I am now told by super woke lefty LGBTQIA blah, RW, XYZ plus people <laughs> that uh, I should be attracted to someone who has a vagina. Now, the last person who told me that was a priest. And <laughs> I, these people are Puritans. They're, yeah. not, they're anti-gay, in my opinion. They certainly don't like gay men. Uh, and it's time for gay people to reclaim our movement, which we succeeded yeah. dramatically with. Why did we succeed? And I was obviously a, a central part of that in the 90s and 2000s was because we talked civilly to people. We made our arguments. I went out and talked to people. I disagreed. I went to evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches, Catholic institutions. I made the argument. And you know what? The great thing about America is if you make the argument and it makes sense, a majority of people will be fair-minded and we change the world. And now this group of leftists is throwing so much of that goodwill away mm-hmm. by right, being so nonsense. viscerally hostile to so many people and to, and to bring the debate also to the, down to the children, which is the children should be left alone. Seriously. 100%. I, you and, have no right and, to indoctrinate my child with your weird views of biological sex and gender and so on. But to hear, you know, the, to hear Leah Thomas tell it, this is really, you know, you're really sort of stuck in the past and that she really doesn't she doesn't have any advantages over the biological women just because she's lived her entire life as a man. But for the last couple of years, here was a question on and listen, listen for the term legacy effects, legacy effects. You mean uh, the, the 20 years as a man as legacy part? Listen. There is this concept of the legacy effects of testosterone, and that that can't ever be zero. Should that eliminate or disqualify transgender women? I'm not a medical expert, but there is, there's a lot of variation among cis uh, female athletes. There are cis women who are very tall and very muscular and have more testosterone than another cis woman, and should that then also disqualify them? Hmm. What do you uh, think? The range of testosterone for women never overlaps with the range of testosterone for men, period. I recommend if people are not aware of the science of this, a terrific book by Carol Hooven at Harvard, a brilliant professor at Harvard, uh, well-loved, but also isolated now on this, who's just, this is, this is about reality and bone structure, uh, musculature, all these things, they're, they're, the wave of testosterone in the womb, the wave of testosterone at puberty, these things dramatically 
dramatically alter your perspective. That's why every human being can look at another human being and instantly tell they're a man or a woman. Instantly. Because that's what testosterone does to the body. And she is, look, she's this intelligent person. This is, she knows this is not true. Yeah, that's right. She knows this is not true. That's right. And happily in the Times this Sunday, it was stated as fact, this is not true. Yeah, there was uh, an extraordinary we piece. We include trans women, sure. But <laughs> don't fool yourself in thinking you're going to protect women's sports. You're not. You're going to destroy it. Well, in the same way, once you actually enter the hospital and need medical care, you can't, the, the, the jig is up. You know, you've got to disclose. They're going to find out what what's inside of you, what your body parts are actually does matter in a medical perspective. And and they matter in a sports perspective, too. They just dug up two people from Pompeii. They were they were liquefied in the eruption at Pompeii by Mount Vesuvius. They know from the bones. What sex they were. Wow. From the bones. Sex is implanted in every cell in our body. And the idea that it's some trivial elements. Look, this is all a postmodern attempt to destroy biology, to destroy scientific reality. That's where this philosophy comes from. And it's a profoundly illiberal philosophy. It denies the centrality of reason to human debate and puts feelings at the front of them. Mm. It believes that science itself is a function of white supremacy. I'm not kidding. It believes the enlightenment was the beginning of darkness. It is <laughs> deeply alien. Look, I went out, I studied political philosophy at Harvard. I have a PhD in that stuff. I had to read this crap. And forgive me, but it is, it's, it's strange, it's weird, and it's taken, and it's being indoctrinated into so many people who really should know better. And everyone else is too cowed by fear because the weapon of saying, you hate a certain group of people. That weapon, which is a lie, a massive lie. I don't th- now. Some people, I've no doubt, are bigots towards people who are transgender. No question, it happens. But my view is the majority of people don't want to harm trans people. Of course, we don't. We don't want to harm trans children. Uh, but we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to get put gender dysphoric children, children in a position of making decisions about their entire future lives without very, very, very careful mental health monitoring. And, and when they have weird, quote, peer pressure, though it's not a peer, from the adults teaching them who are pushing them into this. And no one can tell me it doesn't happen. It happened in my son's school. I witnessed this day after day when he would come home and tell me and I was probing once I heard the first story. What they say today, what they say today, it, they were pushing it as though they wanted the boys in this all boys school to declare themselves girls. This school no longer uses the term sons or boys. 
Uh, they just God. say your student, your student. This, your student. I mean, this is one of the reasons we left. Um, now, wait, I want to stand you by because there's so much more to get to, including whether you learned that term nibbly bits while you were at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But, um, it just came into my head, that phrase. I was just trying to think of something that wouldn't. Uh, meat and two veg. How's that? Your meat and two veg. That was the other thing we used to say in English. <laughs> I don't know if that's better. All right. Stand by because uh, I do want to ask you about that cad John Stewart, what happened there. Oh. And also okay. Bill Maher pushing back on some of this because he's been. Yeah characteristically brave on this issue, I would say, yeah. and uh, to his credit. Sorry. So stand by. We'll, we'll come back right after a quick break. More with Andrew. And then we will come back after that with analysis of the Sussman not guilty verdict. John Durham's case against the HRC lawyer, Michael Sussman, fell apart and the jury saw it and he was found not guilty. It's OK if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. Let's talk about Bill Maher. Because I know you think this was sort of an important moment because uh, he li he's listened to he's he, the left listens to him. He has influence with, I think, large swaths of the left still, even though he's not a, he's not a woke leftist, but he's still a leftist. He hasn't abandoned his liberal principles. I think he considers himself a man without a party currently, like a lot like a lot of people. Anyway, he took on this whole transgender insanity uh, recently on a show. Here's a clip. Something about the human race is changing at a previously unprecedented rate. We have to at least discuss it. When things change this much, this fast, people are allowed to ask, what's up with that? All the babies are in the wrong bodies? Because we're literally experimenting on children. Maybe that's why Sweden and Finland have stopped giving puberty blockers to kids. Because we just don't know much about the long-term effects. Although common sense should tell you that when you reverse the course of raging hormones, there's going to be problems. If this spike in trans children is all natural, why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. That's a great question. Well, the, I think it misses one other central point here, which is that not just regional, but why has there been over the last 10 years a 5,000% increase in transgender identification among teenage girls, a, a, a group previously unheard of in this kind of study. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as you say, these kids are being taught, essentially, that if they're lucky, they're trans. If, they're, yeah. if they want to be cool, they're trans. Now, I want to just say one word about what this does to gay kids. You're a gay boy, right? You're and you may have some effeminate characteristics. And you were told you could be a girl underneath. That's who you really are. That's homophobia. That's, that's the old smear. You're not really a boy, you're a girl. And you're putting that terrible idea into this boy's head at an incredibly impressionable age. These 80% of children with gender dysphoria grow out of it and turn out to be gay. Yep. Underneath this is an attack on gay kids. And 
the gay rights movement has been so co-opted by postmodern queer and transgender ideology that they can't see this. And I'm telling you, just as there is a big outcry among parents about this confusion of children with, let's face it, postmodern queer theory. This is not reality. It's not biology. It's not what we know to be true about the tiny number of people who are transgender. It is an attempt to end the sex binary. And in the process, it's driven by a lot of homophobia. And at some point, this LGBTQ movement has to split up. Well, that's so interesting to say that a a very good friend of mine who's gay said early on, kind of laughingly, but he was serious. Why do we have to share a letter group with them? Like he he didn't see the causes as perfectly aligned. He didn't like the activists who represent the trans community, if there is such a thing. And he saw what you're seeing, which is too often the things that we fought against, like, oh, my son likes pink. You know, now it's maybe he's trans. Right. We used to be like, okay, just because he's pink doesn't mean anything. He could be gay. He could be straight. It doesn't like it doesn't mean anything. We sort of got to the point where we accepted that. And now suddenly we've gone back to where it means you're a girl. You forget gay. They've gotten rid of gay altogether. Yes. And and how regressive that is, how reactionary we should be telling little boys and girls, be express yourselves how you will. There is no one way of being a boy. There's no one way of being a girl. Thank God for all the bookish boys and all the tomboyish girls out there. We're all humans. That's much more important. They create a spectrum from, I'm not kidding, on one end, G.I. Joe, on the other end, Barbie. What is this? (laughs) Why have we gone back to the worst stereotypes of men and women? (laughs) When the whole point of the gay rights movement was to say, we can love other men and be men. Our ownership of our own sex is critical to being gay, but critical to being trans is disowning your sex. Mm -hmm. It's not just not alike. It's directly opposite. Now, historically, transgender people were part of the umbrella, as it were, because they were protected. And most of us and the vast majority of us want to support trans rights. And we do. As I say, we have them. Yeah, we finally got the Civil Rights Act. You will never hear them mention this breakthrough. Why? Because they're not interested in civil rights. They're interested in transforming society on leftist grounds. They have co-opted us. And we gay people have to say, you do not represent us. We want to protect gay kids from this indoctrination, as well as straight kids from this indoctrination. Mm -hmm. And we are defined by the ownership of our own sex. The worst thing that was said to me as a kid when I was at Christmas with my, my, my mom and my grandma, and I had a younger brother who was four years old, my younger brother was bashing a truck up against the wall, and I was sitting in the corner reading a book, and my grandmother looked at my mother and looked at the two of us, and she said to my mom, well, at least now you have a real boy. Hmm. And do you know what that does to a kid? Aww. Being told that you're not really a boy, that there's something wrong with you? There is nothing wrong with a gay kid who's bookish or who likes things that are stereotypically feminine. There are yeah. plenty of gay kids who would not like that, but there are some who are. And, and again, this undermining of the self-esteem of gay children. How on earth 
did the gay rights movement get caught up in this? Yeah. Um, and a few of us are trying to speak out. You know, we're smeared constantly because of it. We're, we're called haters. We're called transphobes. There is nothing transphobic about Martina Navratilova. Right. There is nothing transphobic about J.K. Rowling. There's that was a good bit of the New York Times piece you referenced where Martina, who, who I've sparred with online, but I, I got to give her this point. She's like, that's where you're going to go with me. I'm a turf. I'm a trans exclusive, whatever, radical feminist. OK. I mean, it's like she gets no credit for all of the work she's done. No. As, you know, you one know of the first also, out lesbians in tennis and so on. In that piece, a gay rights spokesperson told Michael Power not to quote Martina, not to platform any of these people. Right. They also right, believe in distorting well, the news. That's right. All right. Now, speaking of distorting the, the news, <laughs> you, <laughs> you want me to get why, why you went on his show? I do not. We're going to have to bring it up with your therapist um, because he's he's been unfair for a long, long time. And I guess maybe you wonder whether the new iteration of him is going to be more fair. You know, like maybe people mellow in their older age. You know, I think people tend to be more reasonable and maybe even a little bit more conservative. Uh, as they get older, not John Stewart, man, to say he is on board the woke train is to understate what we saw on that show. And I know you've described it as an ambush. It had the feel of an ambush where they had him to super, super far left woke people who are who hate white people. And then you uh, satelliting in and, you know, sort of saying, well, I kind of like America and I don't really hate all white people. And I don't really think that the nation is white supremacist. And they treated you like David Duke has sh- had shown up. It was insane. Here's just a small clip of what you had to deal with there. I think you are not living in the planet most Americans are, which is why this kind of extremism, this, right. this anti-white extremism yes. is losing Popular support is is creating a backlash. Is going to elect Republicans and undo yeah. a lot of the good you think you're doing. This is what Secondly, happens when you don't talk about it. Right. This is what happens when white yeah. people don't talk about it. Is you have racist dog whistle tropes like this yeah. that actually perpetuate and perpetuate and perpetuate. So I am. I, I and I did not come on this on this show to sit here and argue with another white man. That's one of the reasons that we don't even engage with white men at race to dinner. Um, so, um, you know, because quite honestly, if white men were going to do something about racism, you had 400 years. You could have done it. single white person upholds these systems and structures of white supremacy and we have got to talk about it if i could finger snap i would finger snap right now uh let's well, remove it from the calling me a racist John. Let, let's you're you've been doing a pretty good job with it yourself there so mm, disgusting your thoughts on it well megan i did it I was asked 24 hours before and I did it as a favor. And I thought, and I was told I would just be one-on-one with, with John. So mm. I was a kind of ambushed, but leaving that aside, um, to go on a television show and to be attacked because of your race and your sex, a dismissal of an entire group of people based upon their race and their sex. The definition of that is bigotry. And he gave a platform for that kind of bigotry. This woman, by the way, she runs an organization in which women pay her 2500 bucks to go to dinner to be told how racist they are. I love it. I think those women get exactly what they deserve. I love it. I think she's doing she's doing the nation some good. Take their money and shame them because they're idiots and they deserve to be exploited. 
it's it's such a cheap and easy thing to do what they're doing. <laughs> it's such an intellectually dumb thing to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It is simply posturing. The, sh- the show was called, and they kept this from me, The Trouble with White People. Do you think they do The Trouble with Jews? The Trouble right. with African Americans? No, it's as if they've decided Never. this one racial grouping is to be demonized, marginalized, and become a target of hate. I, they have become everything they once said they opposed. They're racists, sexists, and they really, really despise this country. There is plenty to be ashamed of in this country. Let's not beat about the bush. The history of slavery and segregation is terrible. But the idea that's the only thing in America, that America's overcoming of that, you hear them say that no white people did anything for this, even though hundreds of thousands of white people gave their lives in a civil war for this, to see nothing of the goodness of America as well as it's obviously darkness. It's not a utopia. It's a place which is growing. And I came here like so many others and look at the footfall. We didn't come here to join a white supremacy. We came here to join the most multicultural, multiracial democratic experiment in the history of humankind. And the idea that these people can now turn around and say nothing has changed since the 19th century is so ludicrous that it was given an entire New York Times magazine to explain itself. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to do, mm-hmm. Kelly, uh, Megan. I, 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 uh, I just... Uh, I just know reality. And I, 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 this difficult position of saying, no, we have to confront the history of racism and slavery. We really do. And insofar as more scholarship is being done on that, it's great. But don't distort that. Don't turn the promise of America into a lie. And don't undermine the principles of America in high schools and schools in order to foment the cultural revolution you want. Stay away. And stand down. And that's, at that's some good point, advice we're going to have to do that. On that show, too. Is I have to <laughs> Are you thinking of going back on that, Megan? <laughs> no, I know that. And I hope others are watching because, you know, you are of the left. You know, it's like even. Oh, I am not of the left, Megan. Well, you, I'm not, you're I'm not, not exactly. I'm, but I'm I mean, very, you people on the left. I'm like not you. a Republican. I'm not a, no, I know I'm, you're not. I'm, I'm, but I am, broadly speaking, a conservative. I'm a moderate conservative. Um, I'm an anti Trump, pro environment pro-game marriage conservative you know i mean if i'm not acceptable who is that's the point i was trying to make and john stewart's not an honest broker i mean i've told the story before but i called him he called me i said on the air that he i didn't like him and that he wasn't an honest broker and that he hid behind the veil of i'm a comedian to offer a lot of bullshit without any accountability Mm. and he called me at fox he called me and he was upset that I had called him all those things. And of course, I stood by every word and I told him why I thought that. And I said, I'll give you three examples off the top of my head of what you've done. And with respect to me, because those are the ones that were, you know, in my head when I was talking about, I know he's dishonest because he said things about me that I know are not true. And he had no answer for why he had misrepresented me so badly on so many occasions. No, no answer at all. He just wanted to get views. That's it. It was just about building an audience. And even on the phone call, he tried to hide behind the comedian trope which I didn't accept. And that's just that's just who he is. Right. So I think people found something charming about his comedy routine on that show. And that legacy has stayed with him. He's done some good work for the veterans. No one would take that away from him. But he's a prick. I'm sorry, but he's a (laughs) jerk. And and you can see it in full in full scope with you. And one other word, that woman 
the lady who gets she's brilliant. She's the star of the whole thing. I, how she gets these women to <laughs> fork over twenty five hundred bucks. Well, you and I would do it. We, let's do it for fifteen hundred. <laughs> no, 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 no. They'd have to. They'd have to pay me twenty five hundred bucks to sit and be lectured by her. I mean, seriously, uh, I can't cheaper. imagine the levels of masochism of these people. Well, listen, she, this- she said after calling you racist, after she said, because Stuart looks at her like, how are we supposed to talk to these people? How are we supposed to like talk to somebody who's got these crazy views? And she said, well, we have to hold them with grace and compassion after calling you a racist. <laughs> but also the arrogance of this, the idea that I, that I, that, first of all, that I'm, I'm a Catholic, right? So I, the idea that I don't believe that every person is made in the image of God, regardless of anything, their race, their sex, or anything, is so fundamental to my worldview mm. that to be brought on television, accused of being a white supremacist like that, by the host, and yeah. it's different things with a guest. Yep. And the only condition I said when I said, I just don't want to go on a show where I'm called a racist by the guests or by you. And they told me that would never happen. Wow. And that's what that's what happened. Oh, that's interesting, because he came out and said, I didn't ambush him. He he made himself look bad. And my booker dealt with his high maintenance shenanigans. I wasn't I mean, like, you know me. Do you know how many shows I've been on over the years? I was I've been on more. I was held the record on Colbert, the record on Bill Maher. I do this. I'm a pro. I would tell you if this was on the level. It was yeah. not on the level. It's uniquely not on the level. These people were liars and manipulators and they knew what they were doing and I was dumb enough to participate. But you know what? I'd rather participate and be made a fool of than run away from this. And, and you know, there's something invigorating about, as Churchill said, being shot at but not being hit. There's something incredibly exciting about that. And so, um, Well, him. I would argue the bullet came back and hit him because I, I think people who are sort of hoping because he went on with Colbert and he said the reasonable things about COVID coming from a lab versus, you know, from an animal. And he sounded like, oh, okay, maybe he's like, you know, gotten more attached to the earth. Uh, Saw in that segment wrong. He's the same old John Stewart. He's always been the one who, you know, took down Tucker in his younger years and so on. And who went on there, you know, year after year bashing anybody who had to have a lean right, even a little, uh, just so he could get clicks or get applause from his audience and didn't care what he did to them. I mean, truly, I'd love to talk to Taylor Lorenz, who feels attacked when somebody sends out a tweet about her with what it was like when I was home breastfeeding my new baby and watching Jon Stewart completely rip me young in my career with total falsehoods. That's who he is. Okay, I stole the last word. Andrew Sullivan, always a pleasure. And I think you helped expose him. So you should wear it with a badge of honor. I do, Megan. And it's it's always an honor to come chat with you. Thank you so much for having oh, me. Oh, good. Let's do it again. And soon. one more thing that you you didn't mention my my collection, um, uh, which is out out on a limb. It's a collection of my essays. A paperback oh. is coming out very shortly, and the the original book is out there for sale. I should have done that. My apologies. Out on a limb, which embodies your life philosophy and that segment we just saw and everything. <laughs> you don't care. Yes. They can say what they want. You keep yeah. talking and writing and we love it. I will. All the best. OK, up next, more on the Andrew Sussman, not the Andrew Sussman, Michael Sussman verdict. Uh, not guilty. And uh, we're going to be talking with somebody who's followed this very closely. We're getting reaction in. People are angry angry. Uh, I said the case had collapsed. That was an Andrew McCarthy take on it, saying he, that was his take on Friday. I'll read you some of the the reaction that's breaking. Jonathan Turley, who we love, writes for The Hill. He came out and said, um, 
Look, the the Durham team was hit with limiting court orders in a jury that was hardly ideal. That is the understatement of the century. I'll give you the facts on this jury. But he says this reinforces the need for a special counsel report. We may not find out what happened with Hillary through the courts. We need Durham to issue a full-throated report to give it all up. Um, we'll come back with that. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know it's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. A verdict is in in the trial of former Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman. He has been found not guilty. Sussman just gave a very brief statement about the verdict. Listen. I have a few thoughts to share now that the trial has ended. First, I told the truth to the FBI, and the jury clearly recognized that with their unanimous verdict today. I'm grateful to the members of the jury for their careful and thoughtful service. Despite being falsely accused, I'm relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in my case. As you can imagine, this has been a difficult year for my family and me. Hmm. Special Prosecutor John Durham. Uh, who was appointed by Bill Barr, Trump's AG, before he left office, has also released a statement that which reads in part, quote, while we are disappointed in the outcome, we respect the jury's decision and thank them for their service. Joining us now to discuss this not so surprising result is Robert Guvea, criminal defense attorney and host of Watching the Watchers. Robert followed this trial closely and uh, is ready to discuss the aftermath. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Great to have you. Thanks, Megan. Great to be with you. Appreciate being on. So I was watching and listening to Andy McCarthy on his podcast on Friday, and he said the case had collapsed going into the verdicts. And the reason he said that was because late in the week, and I talked about this at the top of our show today, late in the week, it came out that the FBI, the ones who had you know, supposedly been lied to by Michael Sussman, he went in there at Hillary's behest. He basically said, hey, got a hot tip for you. Trump's been talking to some Russian bank called Alpha Bank. You should look into it. I swear I'm not not here on behalf of anybody. Um, Certainly not Hillary, who I represent, but she didn't ask me to come. I swear. Trust me. So that's that's what happened. But the FBI gave testimony in the case, a bunch of different people. And it came out that the FBI in in seeking its investigators, sicking its investigators on this, said to the investigators, we got a hot tip need you to investigate it. And the investigators, like any investigator, said, oh, who's the source? We need to know so we can figure out if it's credible. And the FBI honchos who got the investigators going didn't tell them that it was HRC's lawyer. They told them it came from justice. <laughs> so the FBI's lying to the FBI to try to cover the fact that this is a Hillary plant, this information. And even those investigators having been misled, they would have been really suspicious if they'd heard it came from HRC. But even having been misled, it took them about two minutes to say, this is bullshit. This is a lie. There's no connection between Alpha Bank, this Russian bank and Trump. And why are you sending us on this wild goose chase? So the FBI looked terrible by the time this trial ended, which was only the latest in the reasons that the jury had or needed to say, we don't really want anything to do with this. They did. The FBI looked really bad. And this is something that the Sussman defense exploited throughout the entire trial. And it really created this unique dynamic in the trial, because what we had was 
special counsel John Durham calling all of these witnesses. Many of them were FBI agents. But some of those people were, you know, they may have been in on it. You know, they kind of may have been in on this scheme. And so what we ended up seeing as the trial unfolded was kind of this bifurcation, kind of this two-tier system that existed within the FBI. You saw the higher up people on the seventh floor, they call it, kind of the upper echelon decision makers at the FBI. And then you had some of the people that you were describing down sort of on the the lower level, the actual analysts, the technical uh, people who were unpacking all of the white papers and the thumb drives. And they knew from the very beginning that this was something that sounded like it was sketchy. But they got instructions from upper level at the FBI to say, basically, you continue to investigate this. And they conducted what's called a a close hold, meaning they kept a lot of this information close to the chest so that the lower level technical FBI analysts were not able to really see the full story. And a lot of this testimony came out at trial and the defense really used this. I thought really, you know, well, obviously they got a not guilty verdict. So they used it to their advantage by sort of making this about an FBI screw up. This isn't about Michael Sussman, according to them, lying to the FBI. This is about a good citizen who went down, delivered this document because he was so scared about Trump and Putin and Russia and all that stuff. But that was all you know, legitimate. They're saying the FBI screwed it up with their investigation. They didn't ask the appropriate questions. And so the defense throughout the entirety of the trial kept sort of doing that. And the government would call FBI witnesses. The defense called FBI witnesses. And you know, kind of every single one of them was like, yeah, we kind of could have done something a little bit better here. We really did you know, kind of screw up the chain of command. We heard a lot of testimony about confidential human sources and the people who were creating some of these white papers that Sussman brought over were sort of known to the FBI. You know, they were confidential human sources, but their information that was working its way up the chain didn't get communicated around appropriately within the FBI. And so so the defense just said it's your fault. So basically, I mean, the way I see it is you have two sides that are in bed together, Sussman, Hillary's lawyer and the FBI. They all wanted the same thing. Stop Trump. Get Trump. They all wanted the same thing. I mean, the the, the information that's come out um, shows that a supervisory agent overseeing the FBI's Trump Russia probe, Joe Pietka, Pientka, sent a note to the FBI special agent, Curtis Hyde, saying people on the seventh floor to include director, meaning Comey, are fired up about this server, this one that's allegedly connected from Trump to Alpha Bank. That's in writing. Then he messaged Hyde, making sure that a case had been open, quote, reach out and put tools on. It's not an option. We must do it. Jonathan Turley saying they basically sounded like unindicted co-conspirators, the FBI. So these guys are in there. Even Baker, who was the he was the lawyer for the FBI, he'd worked with Sussman together a long time ago. He was there reluctantly. He's like, okay, he came in. Yes, he told me he wasn't there on behalf of any client. And then Durham's lawyer for the prosecutor said, yo, I know. And you wrote that in a text message explicitly. You had it in a text message he sent to you. Forgive me. That's what happened. And the text message sent to you the night before said, I'm coming over and I'm not coming on behalf of any client. And you didn't produce that. To us, the prosecutors, that was an important document. Why didn't you produce that, Mr. Key Witness Baker of the FBI? And Baker said, this is your investigation, not mine. Nobody was there to help Durham. Nobody, not the judge, not the jury, not the FBI agents, and certainly not Michael Sussman. You're exactly right. Every single person in there, it was a really weird thing to see because normally I'm a criminal defense attorney. Normally when we are representing clients, we see the prosecution and the police officers and all of their witnesses like BFFs, you know, best friends, 
they are in total sync. The prosecutor asks a question. The police officer sort of, you know, ready, chomping at the bit to say the answer. But we didn't get a lot of that here. There, there, the witnesses were all sort of opposed, adversarial to the prosecution on both sides. Right. And even in a lot of the trial testimony, you mentioned some of the text messages that were sort of being sent back and forth. They were almost friends. I mean, Michael Sussman and Jim Baker, Sussman met with Baker at the FBI. They sat down and they had that meeting back in September 2016. But before that, they were sending messages back and forth. You know, they were sort of, I would sort of joke that they go to the same cocktail parties. You know, they're part of the same social circles. And before, during the actual meeting and after the meeting, Sussman continued to engage with Jim Baker, sending him messages about him getting a new job over at Twitter saying, hey, Jim, congratulations on the new job. I know you're going over there. Jim responded and said, Sussman, I haven't even made this public yet. You know, how do you know about all this? And so th there's this sort of very interconnected web of nefariousness that, that is really, really pernicious. And I think that today was a, a disappointing verdict because we really wanted to see more of where this went. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, because what they needed to prove was that this guy Sussman went into the FBI and that he and he lied by saying he was not there on behalf of a client when we all know he was really there to represent the HRC campaign, which was his client. I mean, we knew that there's only a, a splitting hairs like was that meeting was that request on her behalf? And he said no. And Durham said yes. So that was one. Did he lie? And by the way, the jury hasn't told us why they found him not guilty. But it was one of these two things. Either they found he didn't lie. Um, and Baker, who was the main lawyer on the prosecution side, the main witness on the prosecution side, he was the FBI attorney, uh, uh, general counsel. And he was the one who said, yeah, he told me he was there not beha on behalf of anybody. But he was kind of sketchy on the stand a little. It was that text message that got produced late that really put the lie to Sussman. I mean, Sussman was caught saying in a text, I'm coming over and I'm not representing anybody. Anyway, there were problems around that, too, which I won't get into here. Then the second question was, was it, was it material? Was the lie material? And I think this is where this all comes in, that the FBI knew that Sussman represented Hillary. The FBI didn't give two dams whether what he said, how he disclosed what he was there. They couldn't have given a shit. They they loved to investigate this. They were like, yes, you can see in the text messages. Let's do this thing. And Sussman's lawyer said, Everyone knew he represented Hillary. Mr. Sussman has Hillary for America and DNC tattooed on his forehead. And now the FBI so excited about this information that they don't even pass on to the investigators that it came from Sussman, her lawyer, uh, so excited about it that they instead said, oh, we got it from justice. Now they want to be like, oh, we were lied to and it misled us and we spent resources where we wouldn't have. Oh, bullshit. I mean, I think I know the jury is biased towards Hillary. But I think even a fair jury could have said, oh, please spare me. We got better things to worry about. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And there's there's a lot there. Michael Sussman worked for this law firm called Perkins Coy, which was a, a major law firm for Democratic campaigns for the last, I think, three election cycles. So Mark Elias was another lawyer who worked at that law firm. He represented Kerry, Obama. And so, you know, this was kind of just the latest iteration of the Democratic team. And the defense made a big point of that. They said, yeah, everybody knew who Michael Sussman was. Michael Sussman even had a badge to the FBI, right, to their headquarters. He never worked at the FBI headquarters, but he was a national security lawyer. And he had all sorts of conferences that he did talking about all of these issues. And Sussman was actually somebody who also worked on the, the quote, Hillary email hack. If you recall back during 2016, and I know you certainly do, Megan, but there was you know, a lot of activity about Hillary's email saying that her campaign got hacked and it was the WikiLeaks saga and all of this stuff. 
Well, Sussman was one of these lawyers that was sort of appointed to deal with that. He was to run point with the FBI on a lot of that. And so one of the arguments that the defense made was that they knew him for from that. You know, there were sort of these parallel things that were going on simultaneously. Hillary had the WikiLeaks Russia hack, but there was another Russia you know, story, which was this Trump Alpha Bank collusion story that was being run parallel. And so at Perkins Coy, Michael Sussman was the person in charge of the Hillary WikiLeaks email saga. And then they just sort of said, well, you know, why don't you run point on this? Well, and so I, he did send a text. I'm, so, I'm sorry, so, Megan. So they can I, let me ask you about that, because that's what's so infuriating about seeing Sussman come out there and be like, it's been a difficult year for me and my family. You foisted a lie on the FBI. You foisted it on the New York Times. You misled the country. And frankly, for the Democrat listeners, he may have cost Hillary the election. I mean, he and Robbie Mook, the campaign manager and the testimony we heard in this trial showed these guys, this brain trust cost her the, the election. So you should be even more angry if you're a Democrat listening to that guy, because they came up with this cockamamie story that even the researchers they were asking to push it were like, no one's going to believe this bullshit. And they were like, we're doing it. It's going to be our October surprise. That's what John Durham said over and over. This is this was going to be their October surprise. And they brought it to The New York Times, which didn't bite. The reporter there was pretty savvy and was like, I smell a rat. I'm not doing this. And so they went to the FBI because they thought that would make the media take it seriously. Oh, the FBI is investigating. And still, The New York Times was like, mm, but that hack rag slate was like, we'll publish anything if it's bad for Trump. So they did it immediately thereafter. Hillary and Jake Sullivan, who's now the national security advisor to President Biden, but was then working for her, immediately tweeted out like, oh, now the FBI is involved. Oh, we definitely need to look into this. Trump, Russia, Trump, Russia. That was her October surprise. It failed. And what ultimately happened was the FBI said to The New York Times, don't publish anything if, in case you are thinking about publishing until we look into this. And those FBI analysts are the heroes of anybody, the low guys on the totem pole who, notwithstanding the bullshit being fed to them by the, the higher ups near Comey, said, there's nothing here. This is bullshit. And there's nothing for us to pursue. And The New York Times did wind up running a story, but it was about her. <laughs> it was about her and her emails and her server. And you remember then the Democrat meltdown that the New York Times would publish this and that Comey would announce it and all that. So the whole thing backfired. It did. Yeah, they were trying to feed sort of both sides. They wanted the media to run with this story and they wanted the FBI to also run with the story so that both sides could kind of buttress each other. They wanted to take this idea that the New York Times or that the media pieces would run with this. They took it over to the FBI. They say, we've got this national security problem here. If Donald Trump is not caught and we don't you know, sever this secret Alpha Bank communication chain, America's over. So they took that to the FBI and the FBI, they know, will act on this stuff or they were presuming that they would act on it because if the media publishes it, well, what's going to happen is the Russians will take down that secret communications channel and that's going to make the FBI's job a lot more difficult. So they fed it to the FBI sort of saying it's about to be published, do something with it. And then they took that same story that the FBI is investigating this and took it over to the media and said, look, the FBI is investigating this. You should write a story about it. And it all was this October surprise. There's a tweet that came out on October 31st back in 2016. I believe it was the 31st or the 30th. And it was Jake Sullivan. It was Hillary Clinton. And they put out a press release saying Donald Trump collusion with Alpha Bank. Now, a lot of that stuff didn't come into trial. But it was all part of this grand conspiracy. And I think that they really did 
want to try to you know get this stuff out there. When we were looking at a lot of the polls during the election season, everybody was saying Hillary was going to you know run away with this thing and it wasn't even going to be close. But they must have seen something a little bit differently. And they really rushed this story out. They published it. It didn't work out well for them. But it doesn't mean that the people who were behind it, the people who created these white papers and all of these dossiers, they were all fake. They were all not legitimate at yes. all. And I've talked to a lot of my friends and, and explained this to them and said, hey, you know, remember that story back then, you know, five, six years ago and explain to them that it was all illegitimate. The FBI looked at it. The actual analysts, the people who do this tech work looked at it and said, there's nothing here. And they did it quickly, like within the afternoon. But it still percolated around the FBI because I think a lot of people there wanted to see this happen. And remember, we're talking about a lot of the outgoing Obama people who were in you know, the FBI at that time. And so people like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, the FBI lovers, we have Andy McCabe, you know, all of these individuals were strongly anti-Trump and they're all up on that seventh floor. They're the people who make the decision about that close hold and about what to do with this information. And you know, the reason I've been so focused on this case is because I want to make sure that we sort of memorialize this stuff down so we can see who these people are, because Sussman just got acquitted. He's going to be out there back working at his law firm, getting involved in the next round of election litigation. Mark Elias, same story, right? He runs Democracy Docket now, and they're filing election litigation all over the country, motions to intervene and all sorts of stuff. So these same actors are still going to be around for the foreseeable future, they, probably engaging in a lot of these same types of activities in order right. to win elections. They started these lies. These are the guys who worked with her and Fusion GPS to start these lies that sent eventually the FBI on another track on a wild goose chase, but certainly the nation on a wild goose chase for the first two plus years of the Trump presidency. So I don't give a damn how how hard his year has been. I couldn't care less. I want him on bended knee apologizing to me and to America for what he and his buddies put us through. And by the way, they didn't let in sort of the broad conspiracy with the Hillary campaign to the trial, but they did put Robbie Mook on the stand, who was her campaign manager, and he gave up the farm. He testified that it was Hillary Clinton who personally approved them going to the Times and and to the FBI and pushing this lie. So we knew that. But that brings us back to sort of your your you're kind of saying the whole thing is swampy. It's swampy from beginning to end involving all parties other than Durham. And that brings me to the jury. OK, so they, they, Robbie did testify to that. And Hillary Clinton has this around her neck like an albatross. This jury couldn't have cared less because, frankly, they're pretty swampy, too. The, um, this there's an, a great piece by Howie Carr in the Boston Herald uh, from not long ago. And he says um, in it, this is his description talking about the jury. One juror acknowledged he'd contributed to Hillary's campaign. Another thought she had, but couldn't remember. Another's a former bartender who donated to AOC. Still another juror's husband worked on Hillary's 2008 campaign. Yet another one defends, supports defunding the police. Yet they all got into the jury, onto the jury. After the trial started, still another juror recalled that her daughter was on some private school crew team with Sussman's kid, with Sussman, the defendant's kid. The judge said not to worry about it and refused to excuse her. Who is the judge, you ask? His name is Christopher Casey Cooper, appointed by Obama after his service on the Obama 2008 transition team. After law school, again, this is the judge, he worked in the DOJ with the defendant. What a coincidence. Later, the judge was also employed in the same law firm as Eric Holder, Obama's self-described wingman as attorney general. Judge Cooper is married to a lawyer named Amy Jeffress. In the Obama years, she worked as national security counselor to Eric Holder. Now she's in private practice. This is, again, the judge's wife, 
And one of her clients is Lisa Page, the rabid Democrat lawyer who was fired from the FBI for her extramarital affair with a crooked G-man, her rabid hatred of Trump and her participation in another one of Hillary's disinformation campaigns. Would you care to guess who presided over the wedding of the Democrat Judge Cooper and his Democrat lawyer wife, Jeffress? Merrick Garland. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't. I can't even. It is. It's very, very swampy. And it made me nervous throughout the entire trial. And, you know, it's it's D.C. So my understanding is, is, you know, I'm an Arizona boy. I'm across the whole country, but it's like 95 percent Democratic every time they vote. And part of the voir dire when they were going through and trying to pick the jurors, there was one lady who said in there specifically and she made it onto the final panel. I don't know if she was released before they uh, you know, they released some jurors before they get their final panel. But she said in her line of questioning, the prosecutor asked her, you you marked on here, you had a strong dislike of Trump. And she said, yeah, you know, Donald Trump is the worst, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of just let her on the jury. You know, he didn't really we didn't see a lot of strong objections or using his strikes, any peremptories or, or a lot of that type of stuff or even real argument when a lot of these jurors came out and said things like that, that they were strongly biased against Donald Trump. And I don't know if that's because it's Washington, D.C., and you sort of you know have to deal with the jurors that you get. And if every single person comes on and they're all Democrats, then you know what can you do about that? You kind of have to play within the margins of those rules. Yeah. But there were several of them, like you listed, that were very, very consequential, in my opinion. You know, this is a political trial. And so if somebody has strong political opinions, that's going to be consequential. And in a case like this, you know, John Durham is not prosecuting Hillary Clinton, per se. But kind of, he kind of is. And if mm-hmm. he prosecutes and is successful against Michael Sussman, then the, the the domino effect might happen and that might spiral into other potential Democrats, maybe all the way up to Hillary. And so now you have all of these Democrats on the jury there. And I'm wondering how they can sort of solve the cognitive dissonance that exists in their minds for them to yeah. change their vote as Democrats. We had people from the Peace Corps there. We had people who were, I mean, almost almost every single person on the jury panel worked in D.C., right? They all worked for the Department of Treasury or some of these big bureaucracies. And so you kind of know how they're going to land. And if you now ask them a question, they're sitting in a jury box, they have to render a verdict and say, I have to find my own team guilty of something really bad that is really misinformation, that's disinformation. I mean, all of the the, the, epithets they throw about everybody spreading misinformation and disinformation, their team was doing it with these fake Fusion GPS white papers and dossiers. And so now they have to sort of reconcile this in their minds and say, I have to vote guilty against my own team. I just wasn't sure that they'd be able to do that. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for any of these political cases getting getting tried in D.C. Just a couple of samplings. Um, Curtis Huck tweets out Hunter Biden gets off the hook next. Just watch Uh, Governor Huckabee, O.J. Sussman. I mean, Michael Sussman acquitted by HRC donor infested jury. I mean, not exactly uh, an unfair way of putting it. And now back to Jonathan Turley, who tweets the limitations on this trial only reinforces the need for a special counsel report. That's the thing. Durham needs to write the summary report of what he found, what Hillary did, whether it can be indicted, you know, person to person or not. Am I right? And will we ever see that? Because we have a different attorney general now. Yeah, I hope so. I would love to see it. You know, I'm not sure that we're going to see what exactly sort of I think we should see, but I do hope we get something out of John Durham. I know that today they released a bunch of the exhibits. And so there's hundreds of other exhibits that we'll be able to comb through. 
including some of the actual you know, FBI records and things that were not a part of the disclosure at the original outset of the case. You know, a lot of this stuff was confidential. We're talking about FBI. Michael Sussman also met with the CIA. And so we didn't get to see a lot of the stuff that was sort of uh, in, in the coffers before the trial started. But now we get to see some of that because it has closed and all of the exhibits are now public. So we're going to go through those and see if there's you know other facets of this that may may allow further prosecutions yeah, or allow some need, of this nefarious. We need a special counsel's out. report because because Durham's investigation has been much more wide ranging than just Michael Sussman. So he needs to you know give us the narrative, like tell us what you found. He's been working for us. I think he will, and I think it'll leak if, for whatever reason, Merrick Garland sees fit not to share it with us. Um, okay, before I let you go, got to ask you about this news on the SCOTUS leaker today. CNN exclusively reporting that they are now the officials are escalating their search for the source of the leaked draft of the Roe versus Wade allegedly being overturned opinion, taking steps to require law clerks to provide their cell phone records and sign affidavits. Some are so alarmed, some clerks over the moves that they have reportedly begun exploring whether to hire outside counsel. The exact language of the affidavits or the intended scope of the cell phone search. Not yet clear, not yet known if the court officials are asking employees who are part of the permanent staff or just the one year law clerks for their phone records. My reaction to this was, what's what took them so long? They're just doing this now. Uh, so what do you make of where the, that stands, Robert, and whether these clerks will be forced to fork over their cell phone data, et cetera? Yeah, it's sort of like I think, you know, I don't have any kids, but you say don't you, you say to your kids like you have enough. I give you this option to do this until you screw it up type of a thing. You get the freedom mm-hmm. until they screw it up. And I think that's kind of the same thing that applies here. You know, the there was this nice tradition in the Supreme Court where everybody was acting it with with respect and reverence for the entity. And that has obviously been evaporated. And so you can't really expect to have the same candid conversations in the Supreme Court anymore. And so if they got to change the rules, I think that's perfectly appropriate. And it has been interesting to speculate. I don't know if uh, if, if there's been more on this, but on our channel on YouTube, we were sort of investigating a little bit who who the leaker was and maybe where it came from, because people can start to piece these things together. You can see who where some of these interns, you know, who they work for, where they went to school, what their LinkedIn profiles say and all of that stuff. And so there was already speculation that this person had already been identified. But, you know, I certainly think that we need to maintain and have the ability of our institutions to work and, and function appropriately without everything becoming political. And if the Supreme Court wants to take steps to stop that type of stuff from happening, I mean, you can't you can't blame them for that. If it's taken the marshal this long to say, give me your cell phone records, I really I continue to have very little faith in her. Uh, I hope I'm going to be proven wrong. Robert, I do have faith in you. Thank you so much for your analysis and for coming on. What a day. We, we were just going to talk about Sussman and wound up we got got the verdict. Um, OK, we'll be right back with a special message involving Canadian Debbie and her brother. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. 
Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash Megan. Before we go, I want to take a moment to honor one of our best and bravest here in the New York area. And that happens to be the brother of our beloved Canadian Debbie. Before she was Canadian Debbie, she was New York City Debbie. And before that, she and her brother, Scott, were both Ohio Murphys. <laughs> and they grew up in Ohio. That's why she makes sense. And uh, that's why he went into law enforcement, too. People from Ohio make sense. And uh, he has been serving on the NYPD for 21 years. But today is his last day on the job. Uh, he su- started the police academy back in July of 2001. Think about that right before 9-11. He was part of the first academy to graduate post 9-11. And what a time it was. Uh, started out working in Precinct 9 down in the East Village of Manhattan. But he's been serving in the heart of Times Square pretty much ever since. Worked every New Year's Eve. Look, there's Canadian Debbie, for those of you watching on YouTube later. Um, working in Times Square pretty much every New Year's Eve. Canadian Debbie was there sometimes, too, because we used to work the New Year's Eve shift when uh, back when I used to co-anchor that show with Bill Hemmer. So a great guy. These cops don't get enough recognition for the risks they take every day to keep us safe, right? Especially these days. And uh, he served his full term. We'll get his full pension, I think, after 21 years. He looks a little bit like you, Deb. And he deserves every bet. He's going to go work uh, in woodworking, we think, back back in Ohio. Maybe start a customized woodworking business, just like Abby's brother works in woodworking uh, and made me the most beautiful bowl for Christmas that she gave to me. And then, Abby, I didn't have the heart to tell you this, but Stredwick broke it. <laughs> she's, she's horrified. She's horrified. But I'm thinking maybe Scott Murphy can pick up where Strudwick left off. Um, anyway, <laughs> thank you all for watching. Thank you for your service, Scott. And uh, don't forget to tune in the rest of the week because we'll cover the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. We expect a verdict sometime soon. And Matt Walsh will be here on his new documentary, What is a Woman? Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more 